the Get Real Indie Filmcast with Jeffrey Michael Bays and Forrest Day Jr. You know, our podcast is doing really well. I'm really excited about the, uh, I'm excited about all the guests we've had. Um, the Apu screenwriting contest mm. still going on, by the way. Yes. Um, that's an episode to check out, I think. Yeah, especially if you're a writer, a screenwriter, and a fan of The Simpsons. Right, because that's an opportunity to get your script produced by The Simpsons. I mean, that's how often how often does that opportunity come along? That's the key word, opportunity. It really is an opportunity to write an episode of The Simpsons. And uh, how cool would that be? I don't. I don't even know. Maybe we should write something. After today, I'm not so sure. Yeah. <laughs> Because we're going to be talking about depression today. I know, I know. And, um, and mental illness, mental health. Right. And uh, we're going to be getting pretty deep into some uh, s- some stuff here uh, with William Dickerson. Uh, he's a filmmaker. He's an award-winning filmmaker, actually. And we've got him on the show for the whole show. Mm-hmm. And we're going to be talking about depression, creativity. Uh, those two things often cross paths. And... Uh, you know, nobody's really sure which comes first. Are you depressed because you're creative um, or or does it go the other way around? But we're going to explore all that. And we're also going to talk about his new film called No Alternative. Mm-hmm. And it's not going to be a depressing, a depressing show. It's just about depression. It's about it. And um, uh, William's a very upbeat guy, but he's talking about, um, you know, his movie, which is based on his sister who uh, passed away. And, you know, it yeah. was a, you know, it, it was a tough time for him. And he wrote this uh, film and uh, dedicated to her and really interesting. Uh, you'll learn more when William comes on. I think Because he wants to bring awareness to all the, the issues, the mental issues that his sister was going through. Mm-hmm. Uh, something that uh, so many are going through right now and uh, very difficult to deal with. And so he's hoping uh, with this film that it'll bring all of this out into the open so we can talk about it mm-hmm. so that uh, maybe we can uh, prevent these kind of things from happening. Uh, we saw the trailer, by the way. Um, Very a, well done trailer. Uh, totally amazing. I, I, I was, you know, sometimes these independent films, you watch them and, and it, you, you notice immediately something Bad lighting, bad audio, bad acting. That's not in this trailer. Seriously, you can tell all the actors are top-notch. Everything is top-notch in it. So I look forward to seeing this. And usually I don't look forward to a lot of these independent films. This one, definitely I do. Let's bring him out. William Dickerson is an award-winning filmmaker and author. He wrote and directed the feature film Detour which is a great film, by the way. Um, He also wrote and directed his new film, which we've been talking about, No Alternative, which happens to be premiering this week uh, in Los Angeles. If you happen to be in the Los Angeles area, it's the world premiere of No Alternative this Thursday at Dances with Films. William, thanks so much for joining us today. I'm happy to be here, guys. So um, let's talk about that premiere. First of all, if anyone has uh, if anybody's in the L.A. area, tickets are available, right? Yeah, tickets are available right now. Uh, It's going to be playing at the TCL Chinese Theater um, in the heart of Hollywood, which is uh, a pretty, pretty famous place. So it's a it's a thrill to be, uh, you know, um, being hosted there and having the movie projected on one of the biggest screens in the world, I think. Um, 
And uh, it's, yeah, as you said, Dances with Films will be the opening night movie. Uh, we're incredibly honored to, to have been chosen for that on June 7th, around 8 o'clock. And yeah, tickets, you can get them at the Chinese Theater through their website or through danceswithfilms.com. Do we have a little back history on, on the film No Alternative? Oh, man, how much time do we have? <laughs> I know. a lot of I history. Know. It's, a, it's a very personal movie. I know that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's, yeah, as you said, it, it is a personal story. I, you know what? It started, I started writing this in 2007 as a screenplay. Um, and then I felt like, I felt like there were so many layers to it that I, I wanted to write more. So I ended up kind of reverse engineering it into a novel that was published in 2012 um, but I've always wanted to actually bring this to the screen, and it is based on uh, my sister who uh, had mental illness. She suffered from mental illness, specifically borderline personality disorder, and one of the ways she was able to, to cope with that was to take the persona of a uh, male gangster rapper, someone you know who was so outside the zone of her um, teenage existence, and I always thought that that was such a unique character um <laughs> and it would make for for an interesting centerpiece for a movie uh and then in 2014 unfortunately she she passed away from from her illness and, and at that point i felt like you know what the books out there um you know my sister you know, had led a very troubled life but there was also a lot of brilliance um to her existence and i wanted to you know kind of uh, immortalize that on screen so that gave me the the extra motivation to just kind of go out there and just get it done so you said um by, was it um i'm thinking bipolar disorder but you you said borderline yeah borderline, borderline that, personality that's, that's disorder that's all part of yeah that's all part of uh depression right and and you're trying to raise awareness about uh, these mental illnesses uh, associated with depression uh, with this film. How does the film do that? How, does, how is that issue addressed? That's a very good question. Um, yeah, borderline personality disorder is, of, in a nutshell, a very, very extreme social anxiety disorder where you, you're the type of person that, um, you know, your, your insecurity breeds... Um, at first, a lot of sociability, you make friends very easily, you're very likable, you're very extroverted, outgoing, but then once you get friends, uh, you distort the friendships and relationships into something that you think is harmful. Um, and then you start to push everybody away. And my sister, sister did this with all of her friends, with her family. Um, obviously there were elements of depression and, um, uh, what seemed like symptoms of, of bipolar, which kind of had a, a manic, uh, depressive mood disorder, um, which also led to a dual diagnosis of uh, drug addiction. So the the film, you know, is, like I said, is inspired by this, by her means to 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 channeling her emotion, right, which was was this character of Brie to be this gangster rapper. Um, so I just wanted to kind of portray someone suffering from, from mental illness in a way that isn't so uh, cookie cutter and so black and white. Cause you know, we've seen a lot of Hollywood movies that portray mental illness very one dimensionally, right? You're either nuts to the, to the utmost hilt, right. Uh, or you're, you know, silent and depressed and not saying any, anything. And there really isn't any shade. There aren't any shades, shades of gray in between those two areas. And I felt like, you know what? My sister was, 
emblematic of the shades of gray because she was a real human being and I lived with her and knew her for, you know, 30 years. Um, so simply by portraying her character as realistically as I could, I felt like I could explore all those shades of gray and, and you know, kind of just dive into all, all parts of each end of the extreme instead of just spotlighting a single extreme, which is what most movies do. So by kind of just taking that, um, you know, t- taking the, uh, the full, um, you know, examining the full palette of her mental illness on screen, I don't think a lot of people, you know, a lot of filmmakers do that. So that was, that was a big motivation for me. After she passed, uh, and you're going through your mourning period, what was, uh, the, you know, the first time you put pen to paper to write this script, uh, what was the turning point for you? What was that point when you wanted to do that? And what was the writing process like for you? Well, the book came out two years before she passed away. It, it, it was sort of a, um, an endeavor meant to um, curb her dying because she had tried to commit suicide several times. And the reason I wrote the book uh, was to kind of show my sister um, the emotional toll on a family that suicide takes. Um, and I thought that maybe if she could see that, that that would somehow enlighten her or kind of get her out of her own head. I mean, it was in a way a, a naive thing to do on my part, because uh, ultimately two years later, she, she, she died of a drug overdose. Um, but I knew that I wanted to um, make the film or I knew that I had to make the film no matter what. It was already written because I, in a way, and this sounds, you know, sad to say, but in a way I I knew it was inevitable. I knew she was going to die and die soon. And she almost died several times. So it's like I wrote the book after she had died already. Mm -hmm. Um, So it was sort of a predetermined thing. What wasn't predetermined was me actually, getting the resources together to make this movie. Cause this, this isn't a detour. It isn't one man in a car. This is a significantly higher budget film that has a lot more obstacles, um, you know, pr- production wise. I mean, much larger cast, lots of locations, young cast, uh, you know, not shooting in LA. <laughs> so the hurdles were there. So I've always wanted to, you know, I, I had always tried to get a production company or, you know, set this up somewhere using traditional, means but this time I was like you know what I'm gonna I'm gonna do the indie thing but I have to work a hell of a lot harder to make it happen but ultimately it it worked out so most of this movie takes place in the 90s right now this is right after the uh, uh, Kurt Cobain suicide um, um, which affected her by the way right absolutely Um, now is the whole movie in the 90s is there is there some more present day how much of her life do you show? Yeah, well, it uh, takes place over an approximately six-month period from the end of 1994 into the beginning of 1995. Uh, and it all takes place during that period. And by the way, that was another hurdle. It's a period piece. <laughs> so, you know, yeah. period pieces cost more money because you have to get period cars and put them in the background and you have to be very precise with the costuming and the props. Um, otherwise you're going to have a lot of people pointing mistakes out on screen. So, um, so there's that. Uh, yeah. So it takes place in, 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 in the early nineties 
in Yonkers, New York, where the story takes place, where I grew up. Um, and we shot there. We shot on location, you know, in the places where I hung out and my band hung out and my sister hung out. Uh, and I've always wanted to, to, to do it that way. How has it helped with your healing process? And what do you think your family's going to think of the finished product? It's a good, <laughs> it's a good question. Oh, you know, part of the reason why I did this is because I, I thought it would be cathartic. But I tell you, it's just like, whew, um, I haven't quite got there yet. Uh, and the amount of times I've had to QC the film, like I QC the movie again yesterday for the DCP, which is the digital print that we'll be screening at the at the Chinese theater. Um, and I can't watch it anymore. I mean, I love the film, but I've watched it like a thousand times. It just, it, it pains me <laughs> to, to watch this over and over again. I think once it's done and people see it and start to, and it starts to resonate with people, I think that, and I can kind of put it behind me. I think at that point I'll, I'll feel some sort of catharsis, but I'll tell you, it's, it was really painful throughout this whole, um, throughout the whole project, just kind of going back to those places. I mean, it was great for me as a director to be able to communicate these very precise emotions to the actors, because I can literally tell them, Oh, this is how I felt. This is how my sister felt. Um, so I had a unique grasp, uh, of the emotional content of the movie that I think some filmmakers perhaps don't have on some projects that they're not, um, not so personally connected to. Yeah. And, and directing is exhausting. Directing anything is exhausting. So the fact that you chose this subject matter that is so close to you and is so personal for you, it's it's got to be even uh, more of an emotional toll, yeah, on you as the director. Oh yeah, yeah. It's 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 been uh, it's been an experience. Um, you know, I, I've often said, you know, because I, t- I teach film classes as well. <laughs> I, I usually say like, you know, making a movie physically and mentally destroys you, you know, it just, yeah. it just does. Um, but I will say, you know, writing the book was a great way to also easily communicate everything I needed to communicate to the actors just because I was like, hey, well, here, here's the book. Take a read. Directing on the day and, you know, leading them through the scenes. Oh, yeah, that was just uh, incredibly um, traumatic, frankly. Uh, I just wondered, um, having gone through it, uh, would you recommend that other directors avoid something this personal or is it a good thing for the art? Well, I mean, do you have to make that sacrifice as a director or I think you do. I mean, I, I don't know how many of these types of films I have in me. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think if you, if you're, making movies because you're passionate about cinema and you're a lover of the art, then I think, I think the movie, the way you make the movie has to be as personal as possible because it's only going to make for a better movie. Um, But yes, it does. It does take a toll, you know, and people outside the film world probably will scoff at that and say, well, you're, you're not, you're not a brain surgeon. You're making movies like how, how stressful could it be? Uh, But look, I mean, movies are, you know, 120 minute, emotional capsule. So where does that emotion come from? It has to come from a real place. If it doesn't come from a, from a real place, audiences will connect to it. They'll call BS and they won't, you know, they'll see a one dimensional movie, but the really great movies are, you know, are made with real emotions uh, and th- those have to be conjured somehow. So yes, I, I think that directors should absolutely get as personal as they can with the material, but yeah, it does take a toll. I mean, 
perhaps, you know, the next movie I make will be a, a comedy set in Hawaii. <laughs> <laughs> if, you know, if all if things go well. After making this movie, I'm going to assume that this one has changed you more as a filmmaker than any of your other films. I'm assuming that. How has it changed you as a teacher? How do you do you teach your students any differently after being involved in such a personal project? Well, yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, I, I have a lot of students have this preconceived idea of what Hollywood wants in a project. Right. And, you know, you have someone again, I'll just make someone up, someone from Malaysia, for instance, um, who's lived a very interesting life and in, in, is, um, you know, is very uh, uh, cognizant of a culture that a lot of people in, in America aren't cognizant of. So, and that, that person would bring me a script and say, okay, well, here's, here's a movie about this, you know, uh, white guy in his 20s who's a hitman, you know, and here's the femme fatale, who could, you know, it, it's just typical stuff. And I'm like, why, why do you want to make this? This doesn't seem very personal or it doesn't seem like you're very familiar with, with this, this stuff. And it, uh, we've seen this before. You know, and that person will say, well, it's because it's Hollywood wants that. And that's what sells. And I'm like, look, you know, what sells is an original voice, right? You need to mm-hmm. be able to announce yourself to Hollywood as an original voice. So how do you do that? Not with that movie, you know? So I, I would, I would, my advice to that student would be, Go back through your youth. What is it that's interesting and unique about you growing up in the culture that you grew up in? I don't know much about that culture. And a lot of people in Hollywood don't. So take that and, you know, create an original story from that and make bold choices as a director to set yourself uh, apart. Then, then if you really want to, then, then you can get movies like that. But in order to get movies like that, you need to have something original to say. No one's going to hire you by seeing something that they've seen or even made before, right? So I, I, I'm a big believer of, you know, using your personal background, where you grew up, grew up and your own personal experience to, you know, and harness that to make an original uh, piece of visual storytelling. That I think it's much more valuable in Hollywood than making Hollywood fair or making something you think Hollywood wants to see. And uh, you crowdfunded mo- some of this, right? Or was it all of it? Or yeah. and do you think do you think the personal message uh, that you have behind this was why the crowdfunding campaign was successful? Yes. So basically, in 2015, I decided to shoot a proof of concept. Uh, which is like a four or five minute short film that is from your feature script. You basically um, take a scene from your script and craft it, do some tweak it a little bit so so it has a beginning, middle, and end, and you shoot it. Uh, so when you have a script, when you take your script out there, you accompany it with this proof of concept, and it's becoming pretty mandatory nowadays to do that. Of, and I knew if I wanted to do a crowdfunding campaign, I had, I had to have some sort of visual material as well. So I shot the first step was to shoot the proof of concept. And then what I did was I started because to launch a crowdfunding campaign, you, you got to spend a few months uh, building an audience and, you know, getting getting everything together. Uh, so while I was doing that, I also put together a business plan um, for uh, outside investors. So it was a two pronged approach because uh, I knew, you know, what I don't know if I'm going to get investors to put money into it. Uh, but I might as well start to crowdfund anyway, raise as much money as I can. And by doing that, even if I don't 
raise the whole the, the money for the whole movie. Uh, I will hopefully get some attention and that will build some buzz and in turn that will help me find investors. And luckily that's that's what happened. So I launched this crowdfunding campaign um, at, using a very personal message. And I, I think that's absolutely critical because what I found is people um, that invest in a crowdfunding campaign, especially when it has to do with something artistic like a movie, they're most of the time they're not investing in it because they want to see the movie necessarily, but they're investing in it because they want to see the people behind it succeed because they like the personal story behind it. Um, and it helps to have a personal message that is connected to the story itself. So I had both of those things going for, for this movie. Um, you know, it's very much a memorial to my sister. It also uh, shines a light on mental illness in the hopes of destigmatizing it. And, you know, I'm so personally attached to it. You know, it's basically my my life. So I felt like I had to go deep with that. I, you know, I did a, a self interview and kind of put it all out there um, because I had to. Uh, and, and that was really what, what helped us raise the money on the crowdfunding end of it. And we, we raised about $65,000 um, through the crowdfunding, which was a, you know, a good chunk, not enough to make the movie, you know, but it was, it was definitely a good enough chunk to get things rolling. And then the, the investors, when I started pitching them, they saw that, oh, you already have $65,000. That's great. And I told them, I was like, look, that's 65000 on top of whatever you're going to put in. I'm not going to, I'm not going to take any points off of that. That's like, that's extra. So in other words, you're going to put in some money and you're, the movie's going to be more expensive than, uh, than you had originally thought. So I used it as a, as a selling point for, for the investors, which, which, which helped a lot. Okay. Williams, stay right there. We're not done by any means. We have a lot more to talk about. We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to get deeper into this idea of depression and the creative industries and creative people uh, kind of crossing paths so often. And we're also going to, we're going to try to ask William some more personal questions. <laughs> uh, stay right there. We'll be right back. If you're a filmmaker with a sense of humor, let me introduce you to the Spoof Dance Film Festival. This is the festival for those who like to make parodies. Spoof Dance specializes in TV commercial parodies, and you can also submit TV show parodies. Submission is open now. Visit Borgus.com slash spoofdance to find out more. Back we are. We're talking with William Dickerson. He's the director of the new film No Alternative, which is actually premiering in Los Angeles this week. And uh, you can see our website for more information about how you can get tickets for that screening. Uh, William, you've, you're trying to raise awareness with this film about uh, mental illness and depression, bipolar disorder, uh, borderline personality and all of that, and destigmatize um, the a mental illness as opposed to a you know people tend to take physical illnesses uh, more seriously for some reason uh, so you're hoping to bring awareness to that 
And so let's talk about that a little bit more because I think it's interesting. Um, filmmaking itself is often, there's a lot of depression uh, in the creative field, in filmmaking, sure. in the music, music industry. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, uh, many of the great artists throughout history um, suffered from uh, some sort of depression. Yeah. Uh, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, well, I mean, it's, you know, borderline personality. If you, if you read up on it, you'll see that uh, a lot of people who suffer from BPD are, are creative types. They're very creative people. Um, I can only surmise that some of that has to do with you have this boiling cauldron of, of emotions that, that you can't keep in check. So how do you how do you deal with them? And I think creative fields, whether it's making a movie or painting or gangster rapping or whatever, uh, are ways to to help channel those those emotions and also alleviate the pain. I think, you know, various creative fields like making a movie or painting or rapping or playing music uh, are are great routes to to dealing with with such illnesses uh, and and channeling emotions in a way that you're able to kind of work through them. You know, I mean, I imagine I don't paint. My sister was a painter, but, you know, she when she when she painted, she found it very therapeutic because what you're doing you know, if you're an expressionist, what you're doing is visualizing the emotion on a canvas. And if you can visualize an emotion tangibly, you might be able to start the process of understanding that emotion, right? Um, and I think a lot of filmmakers, of you know, have dark sides and experience um, perhaps, you know, I don't know, you know, not saying every filmmaker is mentally ill, but I'm sure a number are. Uh, or deal with things that aren't that can't be dealt with physically that have to be dealt with mentally and you know filmmaking as our, our other art forms are a cerebral enterprises right um so i think it's a nat- there's a natural connection between the mentally ill and uh you know the the uh creative drive in a person yeah and and being an artist is a struggle Oh yeah, um, because Absolutely. we live in a in a culture that kind of uh, looks down on it as a kind of a lesser field. I know um, because you know I started filmmaking uh, when I was a kid, right? I was about ten years old, playing with a camera, and uh, what I was doing with the camera was quite artistic for a ten year old. And growing up in the Midwest. Um, you know, creativity is kind of seen as a waste of time, <laughs> you know. So so I, you know, as I became went to college and became a filmmaker, I, you know, I kind of faced that almost an embarrassment about what I was doing, you know, because I felt like there was a stigma against, uh, you know, the creative field and being a creative person almost felt like a problem, <laughs> you know. Yeah, no, I, um, felt, I felt similarly growing up, yeah. you know, I mean, I. I I, I have very su- supportive parents, right? Um, you know, all throughout my life, but it was limited to the extent of, well, you should get, you know, what's the backup plan, and you know, you should probably become a lawyer. I mean, I have a lot of lawyers in my family, <laughs> right? So going to, going to film school was not uh, on the top of their, uh, you know, wish list for me. Um, 
<laughs> you know, like like you, uh, Jeffrey, like, you know, I got, I was, I don't know, it was like sixth grade and my grandfather gave me his like old camcorder and I just started messing around and making movies and every chance I, I got, I was making movies and it was just, you know, I started to see the world visually and try to figure out how to capture it visually and it became so ingrained uh, in me as a person. So I always knew I wanted to, to go into this field, but I was always being pushed into, you know, the more practical direction of how, how to support myself. Um, you know, it, but it is, it is a struggle because artists, you know, unless you're the top 1% of artists, you're, you're going to be struggling to, to make ends meet. I mean, just the, that's the nature of, of the, uh, of the business. It's very mercurial. Um, you know, filmmaking, you know, people think, oh, you're in Hollywood making, making movies, make a lot of money. Well, uh, not indie film. <laughs> it's, yeah. that's a, that's, you know, a struggle. And, and, and as you guys know, I mean, the amount of work involved there, the ratio between like wor- the work and the reward financially, it's, it's lopsided to the, you know, nth degree. Um, you just gotta, you know, the amount of jobs you, you kind of put yourself up for the amount of work that goes into it. Uh, it it's, it's incredibly taxing and, and often, you know, rarely rewarded. So, you know, I mean, there's a lot of sacrifice involved, but yeah, I just, I, I love movies and I want to, you know, ultimately leave, leave these behind when I uh, spring off this uh, mortal coil. I have uh, another question. This might be a tough question and, uh, you know, we can cut out the answer. Uh Uh-oh. I'm getting nervous for you. If you don't want to, if you don't want to answer this or whatever, um, this might, it might be a tough question. Um, so, you know, Ken Burns, he's the famous documentarian, um, you know, civil war series. Um, he once said that the, or he said quite often, actually, that the, the thing that keeps him going in making all of those documentaries is that, um, because he's, you know, he's using photographs uh, from the past, uh, hundreds of years in the past, well, not hundreds, but uh, close to a hundred. Um, he says that the reason he does that is because he feels like he's bringing those people back to life. Mm. Do you feel like this film uh, is bringing back your sister? Yeah, I mean, I think that that was part of, I think that was part of the intention of making the film. Um, but the interesting thing is like the, the person, and I started the casting process kind of looking for someone who looked like her. Right. Uh, and I ended up casting someone who didn't look anything like her, which is very strange. And I didn't do that necessarily on purpose, or maybe I did. Maybe there's some sort of subconscious thing there that I'm just not aware of. Um, I thought I chose the best actress for it. And, you know, she's, in my opinion, her auditions were, were the best. I mean, some of the best auditions I've ever seen from this actress. Her name is Michaela Cavazos. Um, and for me, it's always about casting the best actor. Uh, but absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, I tried to capture, out of any character in the movie, I tried to capture her, you know, uh, most similarly to my sister as I knew her. Um, all of her raps that she performed were down to the, you know, lyric the same. Um, and movies are forever, right? 
Uh, and I feel like, you know, she was my, I, you know, I often said that I, I lost my biggest fan because she loved everything I did, even more, even more than my, you know, parents. Um, so I think, you know, by having this out here, I mean, I know wherever she is, she's looking down and is thrilled to, you know, uh, to the hilt. So that, that makes me feel real good. Um, you know, but I, yeah, I don't know how people were, will perceive it because, you know, they're, while there are brilliant parts of my sister, she was also, uh, at times, you know, not, not a very good person. And that was just, that, that was a, a symptom, uh, or I should, I should say a byproduct of the illness this is not her fault. Right. You know, it's like if someone has a broken leg, they limp and someone looks at them and they don't, they don't look twice. Like, Oh, he's having trouble walking. He's limping. I understand. But if someone is not so nice as, you know, but they're mentally ill, people are less sympathetic to that. And that's, that's a shame, right? Because people are ill, people are ill. And I think, you know, society has uh, somehow deemed the brain not a part of the physical body. Obviously it is, <laughs> right? But, you know, there were so, there's so many misunderstandings about my sister. And I know there's going to be misunderstandings about this character. Um, and some of, you know, some of her behavior is going to be hard to swallow uh, from people. So I think there's a part of me that is also nervous that, oh, I hope I didn't make her look bad because <laughs> I'm putting all this out here because it's not a it's not, you know, an after school special. This is a this is a dark, edgy film. Right. Um, but you know what? Thinking about it, she was into the same stuff I was, same movies. Um, she had kind of a, you know, obviously a dark edge to her. I think she would, she would appreciate that. And, you know, that, that makes me feel good. Um, if, even if other people don't think the same way I do. Uh, your relationship with your sister when she was alive, were you guys like really close or were you watching this from a little bit of a distance? You know, I mean, we were cr close growing up, but I had been, you know, I lived in Yonkers, New York, where she lived until 2004. Then I moved out to, to Los Angeles to go to AFI. So I've been out here ever since. I would go back often, but most of the time, you know, I mean, for most of the year, I was 3,000 miles away when we would talk mm -hmm. on the phone, but I would definitely be at a dis distance. And there was a, you know, and I feel ashamed to say this, but there was a, there were a lot of times where I chose not to call her, not to talk to her, not answer her phone call because I would be, I would be afraid of saying the wrong thing that might set her off, mm -hmm. right? Because you're always mm -hmm. walking on eggshells. Um, and there's also a part of me that wishes that I had been more proactive in that sense, uh, because, you know, my parents knew what, what was going on and they were privy to, you know, how badly she was doing. But they also didn't want to burden me with that. So they protected me and shielded me from it to a certain extent, which in hindsight, yeah, I, there's a part of me that wishes they didn't because then I would have had more interactions with my sister. But, uh, you know, I, I understand why why they were doing that. Um, you know, it's. It's tough because, it board, like I said, borderline personality pushes people away and she pushed her family away, right? And she pushed me away. She pushed all of her friends away. Mm -hmm. She was such a popular person, but, you know, by the time of her death or the last few years, like, she just pushed everybody away. Like, no one would be friends with her because they couldn't. It was just, like, impossible. Mm -hmm. The more that people can sort of understand that sometimes the less pleasant, the less pleasant part of mental illness or, you know, of people with mental illness is not intentional, that it's a, 
a part that it's a part of the disease. The, the more that, that I can make that clear and other filmmakers and artists can make that clear, the better I think it is for, for society. Um, because what it naturally leads to, you know, not thinking of it that way is people just don't want to deal with it. Oh, I don't want to be around that person. Well, you know, I mean, you're not going to help the guy that broke his leg. Of course you, you will. Right. But why, how is this different? So if I could, if I could add to that conversation with this movie, um, in a positive way, then I've, I've done my job. Who's your target audience for no alternative? And is there a message in it for, for the audience? I think the right way to, 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 um, to talk about it in terms of demographic is it's a movie for teenagers of now, teenagers of uh, yesteryear and teenagers of the future. It's, it's very relatable while it specifically focuses on a time period in, in, the 90s, right? Uh, these kids are experiencing things that every teenager experiences. So I think it's very universal. Uh, I think people that grew up in the 90s will love this movie because it's it's very nostalgic in that sense. Um, I feel like there's going to be a deluge of movies that go back to the 90s pretty soon. I mean, we're already starting to see a little bit of that. And there's going to be a lot more, kind of like the way the past 10 years has been tons of 80s movie nostalgia, you know, in the air. Um, so... You know, I, I think that it could be a trip down uh, memory lane. As for the theme of, I'm a big pro- proponent of figuring out what your theme is as a filmmaker and making sure you imbue every frame with that theme. And the theme of this movie is all alone is all we are. And that that, that is a, um, a, a lyric that was misheard by one of the characters in the alternative from a Nirvana song called all apologies. I believe that mm-hmm. the actual lyric is all in all is all we all are, but oh, really? You know, yeah. But if you listen that. to it, it sounds like all alone. I've always wondered that myself. Yeah. <laughs> all alone is all we are. Um, yeah. and I felt like, you know what, that, that, the, the mistaken lyric is, is the theme to this film where, because mm-hmm. the 90s, you know, everyone kind of felt alone and alienated, but they were all alienated together through this music of the time that blew everybody away. And, you know, and all the music was about loneliness and, you know, death and uh, drugs and everything, but it, it brought everybody together kind of ironically. Um, and I think people, you know, what they'll take away from the film is... You know, we only have a limited amount of time on this this earth, and ultimately, you know, we are we are alone. Uh, but but we're alone together, right? So um, it's you know, it's not a musical comedy, uh, but it's not the darkest thing on the planet. It's it, there there are a lot of amusing moments, and it's filled with music. I mean, we have original music from the the grunge band in the movie uh, that is based on. But loosely based on my band, and I actually use my my band songs from the '90s in the film. Then we have my sister's music, the actual lyrics from her raps back in the '90s and early 2000s. And uh, also, we got some pretty high profile '90s bands like um, uh, Sebado, Lisa Loeb, Self, um, Super Drag failure and, and others to be on the soundtrack. So there's, there's gotta be like 40 or 50 songs in this thing. What was it like directing yourself? Ah, <laughs> that's a good question. Well, I will preface this with if 
if this was an autobiographical movie, it would bore the pants off. Because, you know, drama, drama's conflict, right? So there's a lot yeah. of exaggeration. There's stuff that happens that never happened. But there's stuff that, hap- that happens in the movie that absolutely did happen. I mean, that's why I don't actually call the characters by the names of the people that are inspired by them. Because it wouldn't actually be, you know, that it would actually be wholly truthful. Uh, but yes, of course, I directed the actor Connor Proft, uh, who played a, a, a version of me. Um, I, uh, I, you know, I think most of the directing came from him just kind of watching me and also kind of playing drums too, because he, he's a drummer in the movie and I'm a drummer and Connor, bless his heart, had never played drums before. So he had to learn drums in two weeks. <laughs> so I, we bonded a lot just by kind of hanging out, talking about drums, playing drums together. Or I would play the guitar and he would play drums, um, you know, and just kind of having to meet my parents and just living living around Yonkers for a few weeks. Uh, it was, it was kind of an organic process. It wasn't very overly intellectual. <laughs> what did you take away from it? Um, like, did you, what did you take away from making this movie that made you a better filmmaker? Oh my gosh. That's assuming I am a better filmmaker after the film. Um, I'm going to assume it. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, that's ah, that's a tough one, um, you know, because I always I'm always very hard on myself, and I I storyboard everything, I beat everything out. I like to be as prepared of as possible. Um, you know, I think just with the, the more you do it, because you know, making a movie, it takes a lot of it takes a lot of time. Usually, it takes a lot of money and resources. Is it, it's not something anybody mm-hmm. can do at any moment, right? Even the biggest filmmakers, it takes infrastructure, right? So. Right. Um, you know, as a director, you want to direct as much as possible because you, you, you gain that experience. So I think just by doing it, I feel like, you know, I just gain more confidence every time. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I have more confidence in knowing how to block the scene, um, which I think if you, you know, block, you know, or stage the scene uh, quickly, it makes your days go by very quickly. But if you're if you're unsure about where you think the actor should go, it can waste a lot of time. Uh, and also, at the same you know at the same time, you want your actors to be collaborators in that process. You don't just want to tell your actors what to do, even though you might have a good idea of it. Um, you know, it's it, it it's something that I think I've gotten a lot better at. And it just if 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 you waste too much time blocking at the beginning of your setups, you will mess up your schedule big time. So I've, I've learned, I've learned that lesson. I think I've gotten pretty, pretty mm-hmm. good at that. Um, and just, you know, shooting a movie on, on a, a, a tight budget, which, um, I joke that, you know, detour, you know, such a tight budget and detour did, did well. And it got me, it got me jobs. Right. Um, and it got me jobs, uh, you know, uh, because they saw that I can do a lot with a little, uh, unfortunately, they keep giving me a little. I, you know, I thought they would give me a lot for the next one. <laughs> so hopefully, the next one they'll, they'll give me a lot. But we'll see. Do you have an idea what the next one's going to be? Boy, I mean, I, I, you know, I would love for it to be another script that I've written. I mean, my writing partner Dwight Moody and I have a ton of scripts um, and tons of log lines. So we have a few things in the pipeline that we'd love to make next of various budget ranges. Uh, I also just published a new novel called The Dream Machine, which uh, came out earlier this week, which is a yeah. sci-fi thriller, which is something of, you know, I, I've 
I've written, you know, uh, other sci-fi uh, thrillers in scripts, no, no, as scripts, but no one's ever seen them. But this is the first one that's been put out there, uh, which is which is interesting. Has kind of sort of a Philip K. Dick vibe to it. That would be cool to direct, but it's very high budget. So I don't know if I'll be attaching mm-hmm. myself to that to that very soon. Do you think having a novel first is helpful in uh, getting a film made? I do, actually. I mean, I think, look, I mean, 95% of material in Hollywood, you know, that gets made into films, uh, 90, 95% of that material is based on pre-existing material. So that means mm-hmm. novels, uh, graphic novels, um, you know, uh, it, it could be a toy or a cereal nowadays, like something that just has some brand awareness and that already has a built-in audience. It's a, it's an easier sell um, to production companies. You know, I mean, no alternative wasn't a New York times bestseller, but you know, it, it got out there, it got read, it got good reviews. Um, so there was this validation surrounding the project that already existed, which I think is great, you know, cause everyone in this town is looking to say no, but if they see something like, Oh, this is a book, it works. I can see this as a movie. Um, that's always, uh, uh, that's always a bonus. Um, so, I mean, I think if you have scripts that you're passionate about, um, that you think lend themselves to, you know, a larger canvas, um, you have more things to say about it, write it as a book, uh, or write it as a, as a graphic novel. So people actually read books now? That's a, well, you know, I like to think so. Um, okay. <laughs> I was wondering. Or maybe they just, you know, have Siri read it to them on their, you know, iPhone. I have no idea. But um, yeah, that's that's another, don't get me started on that. That's just, that'll make me really depressed. Um, but yeah, yeah, I think people still still read books. I hope so. The film is called No Alternative. It's premiering this week in Hollywood. Tell us again about how to get tickets to this. Sure. Well, it's playing at the uh, the Chinese Theater on Hollywood Boulevard on June 7th um, as the opening night film for Dances with Films. And you can get tickets at their website, danceswithfilms.com, uh, or you can go directly to the Chinese Theater itself or their website to get tickets. William, uh, thanks so much for joining us today. It's been a great conversation and uh, we'll have to have you back sometime. Yes, absolutely. Thanks so much for, for having me. It was great to talk to you guys. Great talking to you, Will. Thank you. So that's our show for today. Great topic. Wow, this was, this is our best show, I think. Um, Fascinating. I have learned a lot because I haven't dealt with those issues like William has and he's really you know an inside view yeah I I think the bad thing though is uh, we're not gonna have a show like this again I mean this is this is the best that we're ever gonna be (laughs) it's all downhill from here man yeah 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 well we'll have to have (laughs) William on every week then oh yeah that's that's an excellent Uh, idea no but I'm telling you I I, my heart goes out to him and uh, yeah it just it, what a great memorial to his sister having uh, a movie and a book. Yeah, such an inspiration to other filmmakers. It's just amazing what he's been able to accomplish. And it goes to show you, you know, if something touches your heart, this is, you know, maybe film is a great way to help you heal. Well, I'm excited to see this film. I think it's going to be amazing. We'll we'll have him back. Okay. We'll have him back to talk about it. Well, that's our show for today. Be sure to tweet us at Borgesfilm or email info at Borges.com. We're also on iTunes. 
Uh, be sure to subscribe to us there and leave us some comments and uh, give us a star rating. You can also find us on Podbean as well. Search for Get Real Indie on Podbean. And um, that's how you can get new shows. We've got a lot of episodes so far. This was number five. And we're hoping for 60, right, Forrest? Mm-hmm. Is, is that the goal? Hey, you know what? Uh, we're, 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 that's our next milestone. But, you know, once oh, we boy. hit 60, then we're going to have to shoot for, you know, 120 or whatever. Whatever. We'll see where it goes. See oh, if man. people like what we're I doing. Tell us if you like the show. Tell us what you'd like us to talk about, and we'll get those guests on. Absolutely. Email info at borgus.com. Get Real Indie Filmmakers is created by Forrest Day Jr., also the host of Rolling Tape on YouTube and The Coffee Shop Conversations. And Jeffrey Michael Bays, author of Between the Scenes and Suspense with a Camera, two filmmaking books available on Amazon.com and MWP.com. The Get Real Indie Filmcast is a production of Borges Networks 2018.